This morning will be in Acts 5, verses 12 through 42. If you would turn there with me. Last week we looked at this somewhat shocking, maybe surprising story of Ananias and Sapphira, and we, we see some of the fallout and just the continuation of the church after after that event. Before I read um, our text, let's pray together. Father God, we acknowledge that this is your word and we know that through it uh, and its, its preaching that there is power. Father, we know that your spirit works. Uh, in the early church, we see the proclamation of your word and the working of your spirit and incredible things happen. Father, we, we pray that uh, you would be faithful and do those same things in our day. That we would hold to your word, that your spirit would work, and that we would work uh, for the building up of your kingdom and your church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 5, beginning in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done by the apostles, by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. 
Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who uh, followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. This passage begins recounting, uh, Luke is recounting for us the signs and wonders that are regularly being done at the, well, by the hands of the apostles. Uh, we're given various examples. The sick are being carried out into the streets. They're laid on cots and mats. And we see that the power of God is so potent and present that even the shadow of Peter falling on a sick person on a cot was enough to heal them. And not only those who were physically sick, but those who were spiritually afflicted, those who had unclean spirits, they were healed as well. It's incredible uh, what's going on at this time. The shadow of Peter falling upon someone who is sick. Later in Acts 19, we'll see another example of the handkerchief of Paul being used uh, in miracles. And as we think about the purpose behind these miracles, why, why were these being done? Why do them in the first place? Well, in the same way that Moses was used and signs and wonders came through him and the Exodus. Here we see that God is making known his power and might. But he's directing their attention here. Not only is 
He's showing them his power and might, but he's also directing their attention to his son, Jesus Christ. These signs and wonders were not unaccompanied with words. They had the words of life that came with them. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I would argue the greatest sign and wonder we see in this text, and it's one we still see today, is found in verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. This miracle is that here are men and women coming to believe. They're receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. They hear his work of redemption on their behalf, his dying on the cross to atone for their sins, his gifting of his perfect righteousness, and they're receiving this good news, resting on Christ alone for salvation. They're being brought to the Lord. It's a miracle. I wonder if we downplay that miracle today. That we don't see just how amazing it is that a heart that is dead, a heart where uh, there is spiritual darkness and a heart made out of stone, the fact that that heart can be made new and spiritual life can come in is an amazing thing. That is not something we can do. I think if we place a little too much emphasis on our decision and uh, I, I have decided to follow Jesus. When we do that, we take part of, well, we strip the miraculous uh, from this sign. The prophet Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh something greater here going on than simply being healed from diseases. It's being brought from death, spiritual death, to spiritual life. And praise God, that is uh, a miracle that is still happening every day. It's happening today in churches all around the world. We see this movement also was beginning to spread in verse 16. We're told that the people gathered from towns outside of Jerusalem. So so far, everything we've seen in the book of Acts has taken place within the city. But now, all of the suburbs and villages and these towns surrounding the city, the gospel has spread there and there are people coming to know Jesus. Reminds us that that promise Jesus made back in Acts 1.8, when he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see that. That is beginning to happen. The gospel has left the city and is going out. Now, there's a lot of ground to cover in the rest of this passage, but I wanted to provide a a summary of these first four verses I found helpful. This comes from Dr. Albert Moeller. He summarizes this first passage about signs and wonders in this way. He says... These verses remind us once again that the Lord builds his church, not humans. 
You may imagine how some Christians might have thought that no one would join the church once word got out of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. But the church is not built on marketing strategies or pragmatic advertisement schemes or feel-good programs. The church is built on the power of God's word and spirit. That's a wonderful thing for us to remember. As I've said before, it's especially a wonderful thing for a small local church like ours to remember. That the Lord builds his church. It is not built by savvy, savvy advertisement schemes or uh, great marketing or feel-good programs. The church is built on the power of God's word and spirit. That's what we see here. And as we continue, we see the apostles arrested and freed. The gospel has spread beyond Jerusalem and gone out into the suburbs, and it has rubbed these religious leaders in the wrong way. We're told about the high priest and the Sadducees, and we're told that they are greatly antagonized by this, and we're given the reason. Luke provides it for us. He says that they were filled with jealousy. These leaders are jealous because for so long they had been the important ones. They'd been the powerful ones. They'd been the ones esteemed by the community who people would go to for help and for advice and to seek their counsel on the things of God. But now this carpenter's son from Nazareth had come on the scene and completely upended religious life as they knew it. Not only that, not only did he claim to be the Messiah, he, he also called out their hypocrisy and called them names like a brood of vipers and blind guides and whitewashed tombs. And they tried their best to get rid of him and yet had fallen short. And now his name and his message was spreading all the more and the jealousy of this was driving them crazy. And they shouldn't have been surprised. I mean, Proverbs 6.34 says that jealousy makes a man furious. We see that manifesting itself here. And they seek to arrest and lock up the apostles. In his commentary on Acts, uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul provides a helpful observation at this point. Um, He uh, hammers the importance of knowing church history, not only clergy knowing church history, but the congregation. All Christians, uh, the importance of church history cannot be understated. And if we were to think back over church history, who is always most hostile to the gospel? When we think back, who would it be? Would it be the, the secularist philosophers, the, the pagan priests? Or would it be the clergy? Dr. Sproul says, those most hostile to the purity of the gospel have been clergy. 
that is as true today as it ever was before. Most of the guns aimed against the scriptures in our day do not come from secularists who could care less. They come from unbelieving seminary professors and ministers who simply will not identify with the truth of the gospel. Has that not been the problem from the very beginning of the church? Was it not the problem in ancient Israel when it was the priests of the nation who betrayed their covenant God? Dr. Sproul goes on to say, since this is true, we can't just assume that because someone is ordained that he is committed to the truth of the gospel. Y'all are good about keeping me on my toes, holding my feet to the fire. Keep doing that. But it's wild as you look back over the history of the church that those most hostile to the gospel have been the religious, the religious leaders within the church. We see that here in Acts 5. It's not Roman soldiers. It's the high priest and the party of the Sadducees. They're, they're angered. They're enraged and filled with jealousy by the apostles. So they go and have them arrested locked up and placed armed guards at the door. Now we're then told of a rescue, and I wish we had more details here. Uh, Luke is scant in information. We are just told that during the night, an angel of the Lord appeared, uh, 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 an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. It's the same kind of language that reminds you of the resurrection of Jesus. An angel of the Lord rolled back the stone that covered the entrance to Jesus' tomb. We, we aren't given much information here. I wish, I wish we were. But they're, we're told that they're rescued, and then we hear these words. The angel doesn't say, all right, I've, I've, I've gotten you out. Run off and hide. Let's wait until things settle down. Let's wait until it cools off and they're distracted with something else and then you can come back and resume the work of the church. No, the angel doesn't say that. The angel says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So you're going to go back to the same place where you were arrested and you're going to continue to say the same things that got you arrested in the first place. They were freed to continue preaching, to continue speaking the words of this life, this life-giving message that brings salvation, to speak about this life. The, the, uh, you remember Jesus refers to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. They are continue to speak about him. So they go back. They're back in the temple at dawn preaching, and it's quite comical because as they're doing this, you have a council of important people deciding what they're going to do with the apostles. You've got the high priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the senate of all the people of Israel, and they tell a guard to bring the apostles to them. And after some time, the guards come back with a surprising report. They say, well, the prison was securely locked. The guards were still standing at the door, but the prisoners weren't there. The cell was empty. Well, I tried to imagine 
what would have gone through their heads at this time. Maybe an oh no, it's happened again. First with Jesus' tomb, and now this, we just can't keep these guys under control. No doubt there was some serious anxiety among them. Maybe even a chill ran down their spine. They shuddered at this news. They were told they were greatly perplexed. And as they're sitting there befuddled, trying to process this discovery, someone runs in and says, I found them. The the men that you've put in prison, they're back in the temple teaching the people. No doubt the Sanhedrin were seething with rage at this point, just seeing red bring them to us now. So in verse 26, the captain with his officers went and brought them. But we're told not by force. They approached them in the temple, beckoned the apostles, please come with us. We have a meeting we have to go to, and you, you're invited to join us. Please come. And they do. Note the apostles here submit to the leadership of these guards, and they come. And the reason that guards are so gentle with them here, we're told they were afraid the crowd would kill them. You can see where public sympathy was lying at the time. Here are these men of God who have been healing those who are sick and those who have unclean spirits. And if these guards showed up and showed them violence in public, I mean, there's a good chance the crowd could turn on them. And so they beckon them to please come with us. As an aside here, as we think of just this comical scene, of just how clueless the, the leaders are, we're reminded that God is sovereign and the leaders of this world are not. We put our trust in him and nothing can happen unless he ordains it. No evil can hurt us. No evil can befall us unless he ordains it. Our God's plans cannot be hindered. The building of his kingdom cannot be stopped. The advance of the gospel cannot be restrained. He'll even send angels to open prison doors. And one of the funny things here is that you've got the Sadducees who are materialists and don't even believe in anything spiritual. The Sadducees don't believe in angels, and here are men standing before them who have been rescued by angels. They're brought before the council. The high priest speaks to them and says, Hey, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Not only are you preaching another gospel, the high priest believes, he says, but you're, you're blaming us for this man's blood. You're bringing his blood upon us. Peter and the apostles give a familiar answer, one we've heard before. He says, we must obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The apostles, they aren't political revolutionaries. They aren't trying to bring in some material or earthly kingdom. Their kingdom is spiritual and heavenly. Jesus says in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. And yet, they tell the high priest, we must obey God rather than men. We're reminded of a helpful, helpful dichotomy here. When, we're, when it comes to questions of obeying the state and civil disobedience. We must submit to the authority of the state unless they do one of two things. One would be command us to do something that God forbids. Or two, forbid us to do something God commands. So command us to do something God forbids or forbid us to do something God commands. We bend over backwards unless those two items are crossed. Peter and his disciples had been commanded by the Lord Jesus to go and make disciples, to baptize them and teach them. And that command trumped the command of this council. Well, this enraged them further. We're told that they wanted to kill them. This jealousy has boiled over into now thoughts of murder. But we've got this very interesting section here at the end. One of the Pharisees from this group stands up and he gets their attention. This is a man named uh, Gamaliel. He was the most uh, respected rabbi of his day. He was actually the teacher of Saul of Tarsus, a man we'll meet in a couple chapters. But Gamaliel was Saul's tutor. And he stands up and he asks for the apostles to be taken outside so they can have a private meeting. And he gives this famous advice. And I'll read it to you again. He says, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before These days, Thutius rose up, claiming to be someone, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if the plan or the undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God... You will not be able to overthrow them, and you might even be found opposing God. All right, so this is interesting. He gives a couple examples of uh, false messiahs or religious movements that caught the attention of the people for a little bit and then fizzled out. Athudius was one example. He's described by historians as a charlatan. He told everyone he was a prophet and that he would divide the Jordan River. He would speak to the Jordan River and it would be divided in two 
And then he and his followers would be able to cross it. We're told from history that once they were down by the river, a number of uh, Roman soldiers surprised them, killed some, took the rest alive, and Ethiodius was decapitated and his movement was dispersed. Never heard of, again, it burned out. Judas the Galilean is another example cited. He was a Jewish leader who led a resistance against the census in Judea. You remember the census in Luke 2 around the birth of Jesus, the whole reason why Mary and Joseph are on the road traveling and they aren't home in Nazareth. It was this census. And Judas, uh, he was against this. He encouraged Jews not to register. Some of his followers would even intimidate those who did. Property might be stolen or burned. He preached that God alone was the ruler of Israel, and so no taxes should be paid to Rome. We aren't, we aren't going to register. We aren't going to pay taxes. Well, his movement fizzled out as well. And so Gamaliel is saying, listen, look at these two guys. Surely they were seen as potential threats in their day, but you give them enough time, they'll fizzle out, it'll disappear. We don't have to cause a big ruckus. We don't have to get the crowd riled up. He says, if this movement is of man, it will fail. If it is of God, it will not fail. You can't stop it. And you might even be found opposing God. So, was Gamaliel right? interesting question to think about. Was was he right in this statement? Well, I'm going to say yes and no. He is right in the fact that in the end, a human movement that is not of God will fail. But that's not something we should use right now. The existence of something in the perceived flourishing of a movement should not be enough to justify it. Right now, there are 17 million Mormons. Seems to be going quite strong. It's growing every year. We even had a Mormon receive a nomination from a major party to be president in the 2012 election. Is it of God? No. What about Islam? Islam has not yet failed. 1.8 billion adherents. 24% of the world population. It began over 1,400 years ago. And yet it's not of God. There are plenty of examples of false religions that have not disappeared from the face of the earth. You know, heresy just rebrands itself. It continues to pop up over and over and over again. So Gamaliel is is somewhat wrong in that sense. Because we see it's possible to succeed in spite of God. It's a terrifying thing. It's possible for a church. It's possible for an evangelical church to succeed in spite of God, at least for a while. Bank accounts might look great. Attendance numbers might look great. Programs and church life might be bursting at the seams. 
It's a scary and humbling thing to recognize that for a while it's possible for a church to grow in spite of God. It's possible to have influence in your community, esteem in your community in spite of God. Existence and perceived success does not equate with truth. Now, where was Gamaliel right? In the end, if a movement is not of God, it will fail. That is true. And if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Those words are surely true. There should be tremendous comfort to us in this. That if a movement is of God, you cannot overthrow it. Reminded of some of the lines or some lyrics from the church's one foundation. Uh, They say this The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against a foe or traitor, she ever will prevail. Gamaliel is spot on right there. The church will never fail. She cannot fail. Dr. Sproul goes on to say that the church is the only institution on the face of the earth that has an absolute, unconditioned guarantee for its future success. The true church of Jesus will always be victorious. It's comforting for us to remember. Well, Gamaliel's advice is followed. The apostles are called back in. They're given a good beating. They're commanded by these religious leaders to not speak the name of Jesus anymore, and then they are released to go free. Then we're told what they felt. It's astounding. I think it's something that only the work of the Holy Spirit can produce within us. It's joy in the face of suffering. We're told that these men rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I wonder if that's how we view suffering. And we're very quick to ask why. We ask lots of why questions. Why is this happening, God? Why would you do this, God? Where were you? How quick are we to say, Lord, thank you for counting me worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. There's no greater honor that we can have. Here on earth, we have the honor of partaking in the humiliation of Christ. But in glory, we'll partake of a purer, higher glory. But now it's trials and identifying with our Lord who suffered humiliation and death on a cross for our sake. And when we, when we are those who 
you know, it's hard because, especially in Mississippi, in the Bible Belt, in America in 2021, we are not often those who are persecuted because of our faith. We're very cozy here, I believe. But still not, it's not unheard of. But any time we're persecuted for the name of Jesus, our way of thinking needs to change and we need to see that as being counted worthy to join in the suffering, the same suffering our Lord faced. They rejoiced in this and then we're told that they went on every day in the temple and from house to house. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Their message never changed. The Lord had not saved them and rescued them from this prison so that they could be free and comfortable and just hang out in a suburb and have a a Bible study. No, he freed them so that they might continue this work of telling men and women the good news of Jesus, that they might come to faith and that he might be glorified. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that this same work that your spirit worked in your apostles would be done in us. That we would be those who rejoice in in sharing the suffering of Jesus. Because Father, when we embrace that, there is, we are unstoppable. There is nothing that can deter us when we see your power manifested and compared next to these clueless leaders who had, had no idea how their prisoners even escaped, Father, we're, we're given comfort that you are that same God today. Our trust is not in our leaders, it's in you. Our, our fear is not in our leaders. We fear and honor you Father, would you make us bold? Would you help us to be faithful? Would you continue to hold us, to uphold us by your strong right hand? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.